Section 5 of Rights of Man by Thomas Paine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Rights of Man, Part the First, being an answer to Mr. Burke's attack on the French Revolution. Part 2 of 13. We come now more particularly to the affairs of France. Mr. Burke's book has the appearance of being written as instruction to the French nation, but if I may permit myself the use of an extravagant metaphor, suited to the extravagance of the case, it is darkness attempting to illuminate light. While I am writing this, there are accidentally before me some proposals for a declaration of rights by the Marquis de Lafayette. I ask his pardon for using his former address, and do it only for distinction's sake. To the National Assembly on the 11th of July, 1789, three days before the taking of the Bastille, and I cannot but remark with astonishment how opposite the sources are from which that gentleman and Mr. Burke draw their principles. Instead of referring to musty records and moldy parchments to prove that the rights of the living are lost, quote, renounced and abdicated forever, end quote, by those who are now no more, as Mr. Burke has done, Monsieur de Lafayette applies to the living world and emphatically says, quote, Call to mind the sentiments which nature has engraved on the heart of every citizen and which take a new force when they are solemnly recognized by all. For a nation to love liberty, it is sufficient that she knows it, and to be free, it is sufficient that she wills it. End quote. How dry, barren, and obscure is the source from which Mr. Burke labors and how ineffectual, though gay with flowers, are all his declamation and his arguments compared with these clear, concise, and soul-animating sentiments. Few and short as they are, they lead on to a vast field of generous and manly thinking, and do not finish, like Mr. Burke's periods, with music in the ear and nothing in the heart. As I have introduced Monsieur de Lafayette, I will take the liberty of adding an anecdote respecting his farewell address to the Congress of America in 1783, and which occurred fresh to my mind when I saw Mr. Burke's thundering attack on the French Revolution. Monsieur de Lafayette went to America at the early period of the war, and continued a volunteer in her service to the end. His conduct through the whole of that enterprise is one of the most extraordinary that is to be found in the history of a young man scarcely twenty years of age, situated in a country that was like the lap of sensual pleasure, and with the means of enjoying it, how few are there to be found who would exchange such a scene for the woods and wilderness of America, and pass the flowery years of youth in unprofitable danger and hardship, but such is the fact. When the war ended and he was on the point of taking his final departure, he presented himself to Congress, and contemplating in his affectionate farewell the revolution he had seen, expressed himself in these words, quote, May this great monument raised to liberty serve as a lesson to the oppressor and an example to the oppressed. End quote. When this address came to the hands of Dr. Franklin, who was then in France, he applied to Count Vergennes to have it inserted in the French Gazette, but never could obtain his consent. 
the fact was that count vergennes was an aristocratical despot at home and dreaded the example of the american revolution in france as certain other persons now dread the example of the french revolution in england and mr burke's tribute of fear for in this light his book must be considered runs parallel with count vergennes refusal but to return more particularly to his work quote, we have seen says mr burke the french rebel against a mild and lawful monarch with more fury outrage and insult than any people has been known to rise against the most illegal usurper or the most sanguinary tyrant End quote. this is one among a thousand other instances in which mr burke shows that he is ignorant of the springs and principles of the french revolution it was not against louis the sixteenth but against the despotic principles of the government that the nation revolted these principles had not their origin in him but in the original establishment many centuries back and they were become too deeply rooted to be removed and the augean stables of parasites and plunderers too abominably filthy to be cleansed by anything short of a complete and universal revolution when it becomes necessary to do anything the whole heart and soul should go into the measure or not attempt it that crisis was then arrived and there remained no choice but to act with determined vigor or not to act at all the king was known to be the friend of the nation and this circumstance was favorable to the enterprise perhaps no man bred up in the style of an absolute king ever possessed a heart so little disposed to the exercise of that species of power as the present king of france but the principles of the government itself still remained the same the monarch and the monarchy were distinct and separate things and it was against the established despotism of the latter and not against the person or principles of the former that the revolt commenced and the revolution has been carried mr burke does not attend to the distinction between men and principles and therefore does not see that a revolt may take place against the despotism of the latter while there lies no charge of despotism against the former the natural moderation of louis the sixteenth contributed nothing to alter the hereditary despotism of the monarchy all the tyrannies of former reigns acted under that hereditary despotism were still liable to be revived in the hands of a successor it was not the respite of a reign that would satisfy france enlightened as she was then become a casual discontinuance of the practice of despotism is not a discontinuance of its principles the former depends on the virtue of the individual who is in immediate possession of the power the latter on the virtue and fortitude of the nation in the case of charles i and james ii of england the revolt was against the personal despotism of the men whereas in france it was against the hereditary despotism of the established government but men who can consign over the rights of posterity forever on the authority of a mouldy parchment like mr burke are not qualified to judge of this revolution it takes in a field too vast for their views to explore and proceeds with a mightiness of reason they cannot keep pace with but there are many points of view in which this revolution may be considered when despotism has established itself for ages in a country as in france it is not in the person of the king only that it resides it has the appearance of being so in show and in nominal authority but it is not so in practice and in fact it has its standard everywhere 
every office and department has its despotism founded upon custom and usage every place has its bastille and every bastille its despot the original hereditary despotism resident in the person of the king divides and subdivides itself into a thousand shapes and forms till at last the whole of it is acted by deputation this was the case in france and against this species of despotism proceeding on through an endless labyrinth of office till the source of it is scarcely perceptible there is no mode of redress it strengthens itself by assuming the appearance of duty and tyrannies under the pretense of obeying when a man reflects on the condition which france was in from the nature of her government he will see other causes for revolt than those which immediately connect themselves with the person or character of louis the sixteenth there were if i may so express it a thousand despotisms to be reformed in france which had grown up under the hereditary despotism of the monarchy and became so rooted as to be in a great measure independent of it between the monarchy the parliament and the church there was a rivalship of despotism besides the feudal despotism operating locally and the ministerial despotism operating everywhere but mr burke by considering the king as the only possible object of a revolt speaks as if france was a village in which everything that passed must be known to its commanding officer and no oppression could be acted but what he could immediately control mr burke might have been in the bastille his whole life as well under louis the sixteenth as under louis the fourteenth and neither the one nor the other have known that such a man as burke existed the despotic principles of the government were the same in both reigns though the dispositions of the men were as remote as tyranny and benevolence what mr burke considers as a reproach to the french revolution that of bringing it forward under a reign more mild than the preceding ones is one of its highest honors the revolutions that have taken place in other european countries have been excited by personal hatred the rage was against the man and he became the victim but in the instance of france we see a revolution generated in the rational contemplation of the rights of man and distinguishing from the beginning between persons and principles but mr burke appears to have no idea of principles when he is contemplating governments Quote, ten years ago says he i could have felicitated france on her having a government without inquiring what the nature of that government was or how it was administered End quote. is this the language of a rational man is it the language of a heart feeling as it ought to feel for the rights and happiness of the human race on this ground mr burke must compliment all the governments in the world while the victims who suffer under them whether sold into slavery or tortured out of existence are wholly forgotten it is power and not principles that mr burke venerates and under this abominable depravity he is disqualified to judge between them thus much for his opinion as to the occasions of the french revolution i now proceed to other considerations i know a place in america called point no point because as you proceed along the shore gay and flowery as mr burke's language it continually recedes and presents itself at a distance before you but when you have got as far as you can go there is no point at all just thus it is with mr burke's three hundred and sixty-six pages it is therefore difficult to reply to him but as the points he wishes to establish may be inferred from what he abuses it is in his paradoxes that we must look for his arguments 
as to the tragic paintings by which mr burke has outraged his own imagination and seeks to work upon that of his readers they are very well calculated for theatrical representation where facts are manufactured for the sake of show and accommodated to produce through the weakness of sympathy a weeping effect but mr burke should recollect that he is writing history and not plays and that his readers will expect truth and not the spouting rant of high-toned exclamation when we see a man dramatically lamenting in a publication intended to be believed that quote, the age of chivalry is gone that the glory of europe is extinguished forever that the unbought grace of life if anyone knows what that is the cheap defense of nations the nurse of manly sentiment and heroic enterprise is gone end quote and all this because the quick-sought age of chivalry nonsense is gone what opinion can we form of his judgment or what regard can we pay to his facts in the rhapsody of his imagination he has discovered a world of windmills and his sorrows are that there are no quicksots to attack them but if the age of aristocracy like that of chivalry should fall and they had originally some connection mr burke the trumpeter of the order may continue his parody to the end and finish with exclaiming quote, othello's occupation's gone End quote. notwithstanding mr burke's horrid paintings when the french revolution is compared with the revolutions of other countries the astonishment will be that it is marked with so few sacrifices but this astonishment will cease when we reflect that principles and not persons were the meditated objects of destruction the mind of the nation was acted upon by a higher stimulus than what the consideration of persons could inspire and sought a higher conquest than could be produced by the downfall of an enemy among the few who fell there did not appear to be any that were intentionally singled out they all of them had their fate in the circumstance of the moment and were not pursued with that long cold-blooded unabated revenge which pursued the unfortunate scotch in the affair of seventeen forty five through the whole of mr burke's book i do not observe that the bastille is mentioned more than once and that with a kind of implication as if he were sorry it was pulled down and wished it were built up again quote, we have rebuilt newgate says he and tenanted the mansion and we have prisons almost as strong as the bastille for those who dare to libel the queens of france End quote as to what a madman like the person called lord george gordon might say and to whom newgate is rather a bedlam than a prison it is unworthy a rational consideration it was a madman that libelled and that is sufficient apology and it afforded an opportunity for confining him which was the thing that was wished for but certain as it is that mr burke who does not call himself a madman whatever other people may do has libelled in the most unprovoked manner and in the grossest style of the most vulgar abuse the whole representative authority of france and yet mr burke takes his seat in the british house of commons from his violence and his grief his silence on some points and his excess on others it is difficult not to believe that mr burke is sorry extremely sorry that arbitrary power the power of the pope and the bastille are pulled down not one glance of compassion not one commiserating reflection that i can find throughout his book has he bestowed on those who lingered out the most wretched of lives a life without hope in the most miserable of prisons it is painful to behold a man employing his talents to corrupt himself 
nature has been kinder to mr burke than he is to her he is not affected by the reality of distress touching his heart but by the showy resemblance of it striking his imagination he pities the plumage but forgets the dying bird accustomed to kiss the aristocratical hand that hath purloined him from himself he degenerates into a composition of art and the genuine soul of nature forsakes him his hero or his heroine must be a tragedy victim expiring in show and not the real prisoner of misery sliding into death in the silence of a dungeon as mr burke has passed over the whole transaction of the bastille and his silence is nothing in his favor and has entertained his readers with reflections on supposed facts distorted into real falsehoods i will give since he has not some account of the circumstances which preceded the transaction they will serve to show that less mischief could scarcely have accompanied such an event when considered with the treacherous and hostile aggravations of the enemies of the revolution end of part two of thirteen